Job chapter 22. Today we come to the halfway point in the book of Job. That is in terms of chapters. We've looked at the first 21 of 42 chapters. The book changes somewhat here in the second half of the book. Not until Job's friends have had their last say. However, only Eliphaz and Bildad will say anything. Zophar seems burned out. He has nothing to add. They seem to have exhausted whatever theology or counsel they might throw at Job. Job answers them first in chapter 23, which we will look at the Lord willing next week. And then at length in chapters 26 through 31. And then from chapters uh, 32 to 37, we hear from a new character, someone we've not met thus far. That's Elihu, who basically sort of says a pox on both your houses or all your houses, criticizes Job as well as his comforters. And then, amazingly, in chapters 38 through 41, God speaks. And it is the most powerful part of the book of Job. The pace changes here in the second half as we hear sort of the last gasp from the friends. And then we move on to final resolution. Eliphaz is the one who speaks in what we will look at today. and He is almost unrecognizable in this third and final speech that he gives. We believe because he is the first one to speak in each cycle that he is probably the eldest of the three, uh, that he's probably considered the wisest of the three. But any sense of that, I think, is lost in this particular chapter. I think his conversations with Job have taken their toll. He's frustrated that he's getting nowhere with this man. Um, And at the same time, I think he's somewhat frantic that he himself cannot come up with an answer for why Job is suffering the way that he is, unless, in fact, Job has done something terrible, something wicked. We just remind you that Job's friends, if they're guilty of anything, it is that they are more concerned with their vision or their version of God, their theological systems, than they are with Job in his situation. The chapter today, the speech, breaks down into three parts. First of all, there is, uh, we find Eliphaz accusing Job in the first 11 verses. And then he talks about God's activities uh, with regard to humanity. And then in verses 21 through 30, a call to repentance. But all three sections really boil down. They deal with one basic question. Is God interested in humanity at all? Are we of any interest? Is he does he bother with us at all? Let's read, first of all, the first 11 verses. Follow along if you would. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, can a man be of benefit to God? Can even a wise man benefit him? What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? What would he gain if your ways were blameless? Is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your brothers for no reason. You stripped men of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry. Though you were a powerful man owning land, an honored man living on it. And you sent widows away empty handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. That is why snares are all around you, why sudden peril terrifies you, why it is so dark you cannot see, and why a flood of water covers you. As with his other speeches, Eliphaz opens with a series of questions. 
They can all be boiled down to one, at least at the beginning. Is God interested in the righteousness of any single individual? In verses 2 and 3, can a man be of benefit to God? Can even a wise man benefit? And what pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? We should take note that it's fascinating that Eliphaz says this. Because we find, and we know this, he doesn't, in the first two chapters, that God, in fact, does take delight in the righteousness of his people. There is pleasure and personal delight as God speaks about his servant Job and his integrity. God says to Satan, the accuser, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Eliphaz doesn't get this, though. For Eliphaz, it is as much as to say God never notices the good things that we do. He only notices the bad things. It's like a child uh, who misbehaves to get attention because they know when he or she is behaving, no one really pays attention. But when they act up, then they get attention. And Eliphaz sort of has this vision of God. that God doesn't really care if you're a good person. Who cares? God certainly doesn't. But if you do something bad, he'll get you. And Job, you have done wicked things. We might ask ourselves, how did Eliphaz ever arrive at this point? Why did he, how did he come up with this way of thinking? Well, I think it, it, he's leading into this list of accusations that he makes against Job. And we would ask again, how, did he, how does he arrive at this list of accusations? Because if you remember, at the beginning of the story, uh, Eliphaz, the two friends, they sit with Job for seven days and seven nights and they don't say a word. And we read, no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Now Eliphaz points the finger at him and says, listen, Job, you are a wicked man. And where Zophar and Bildad have talked about this mythical wicked man, Eliphaz points a finger and says, you are that man. And he gives a list of his crimes, his sins. In verse 6, that he has exploited the destitute. In verse 7, he has shown inhumanity to those in need. In verse 8, he has uh, misappropriated the, the use of his land. And in verse number nine, he has disregarded the defenseless. There are two things worth noting about this list. First of all, it will be fleshed out in chapter 31. Job will answer blow for blow this, this list of accusations against him. And uh, I think in many ways it will flesh out uh, what Eliphaz sort of mentions in passing here. <clears throat> for example, uh, verse number eight, the idea of uh, owning land. Why is that a crime? Well, Job answers, if my land cries out against me and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I have devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirits of its tenants, then let briars come up instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. In other words, the accusation is you have land and you have not only abused the land, sort of ecological violence, but also the people who work on the land for you, the tenants. So when we get to chapter 31, I think we will see this fleshed out more.
But the second thing, and I think this is important, what Eliphaz accuses Job of when the Mosaic law is given, these are actually sins. These are breaking God's laws. Eliphaz is not saying to Job, at least I don't think he is, Job, you're not a very nice person. I think there might be a tendency to read it that way. Um, you know that somebody was thirsty, you didn't give them something to drink. Someone was hungry, you didn't give them. You're sort of an Ebenezer Scrooge. You're not helping those in need. It's much more than that. This is someone who has violated God's law. Beginning with the, des- uh, the exploitation of the destitute. According to God's law, which was given to Moses, has a lot to say, by the way, about being in debt, about collateral, about interest. A creditor could accept any collateral that the person, the debtor, would offer, except for whatever they need to do their job and for their cloak, that is, their coat. You could take it in the daytime, but at the end of the day, you have to give it back to the person because that's what they used for a blanket as well. I mean, they're poor, that's why they're borrowing from you. So you can take it as collateral, but it has to go back to them at sunset. Eliphaz charges that Job has violated this. He has exacted collateral without any basis for doing so, as much as to say, give me collateral. He has not loaned anything. And he has taken by force that which people needed for clothing and for protection. In verse number seven, he has been guilty of uh, inhumanity against those in need. And again, we might say not giving water to the weary, withholding food from the hungry might be mean, but it's, it's not a sin. It's not a violation of God's law. I would disagree. And there are many verses I think I could use. I will just give you one, which I think summarizes the law in this matter. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. It's from Deuteronomy 15. God commands that we are to be open-handed. And so if somebody does need a drink and we don't give it, then we have violated God's command. In our study of the Minor Prophets in Sunday School, we have seen God's anger against his people for failing to care for those in need and instead exploiting them. As Amos puts it, selling the needy for a pair of sandals. This is sin. and God is not pleased with it. Verse number eight, the misappropriation of land. And here, I think, the crime is failing to match responsibility with privilege. In the Bible, privilege brings responsibility. And the more privilege you have, the more responsibility that you have. And Eliphaz says, you know, you used to be a rich man, and when you were rich, you did not live up to the responsibilities that your privilege brought you. And then verse number nine, a disregard for the defenseless. And again, we are confronted with something which is very specifically against God's law. God is very specific that we are to care for the weak ones of society, the widows, the fatherless, the aliens. In fact, David in Psalm 68 identifies God along these lines. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. So these are not small, petty mean things that Job has done. 
They are crimes against God and humanity. And that is why Job has suffered all these things. At least that's how Eliphaz sees it. There's something, though, we need to remember before we move on. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, devotion to God cannot be separated from how we treat others. There are two great commandments that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves, And it is in loving our neighbor that we demonstrate our love for God. Jesus makes an emphatic point of this in what Matthew records as his final public teaching. The last things that Jesus said publicly in his earthly ministry, so it must have been important, was the parable of the sheep, the sheep and the goats. And he talked about feeding the hungry, giving something to drink to the thirsty, inviting strangers in, clothing those who need clothes, looking after the sick, and visiting those in prison. This is how our devotion and our love for God is to be demonstrated. I've mentioned many times before hearing people say, well, I love the Lord, it's people I can't stand. Well, that is a violation of what God commands. It is in the way that we treat and love our neighbor that we show our love for God. Now we come to the second part of this chapter, verses 12 through 20. Let's follow, if you would, as I read it. Is not God in the heights of heaven? And see how lofty are the highest stars. Yet you say, what does God know? Does he judge through such darkness? Thick clouds veil him so he did not, does not see us as he goes about in the vaulted heavens. Will you keep to the old path that evil men have trod? They were carried off before their time, their foundations washed away by a flood. They said to God, leave us alone. What can the Almighty do to us? Yet it was he who filled their houses with good things. So I stand aloof from the counsel of the wicked. The righteous see their ruin and rejoice. The innocent mock them, saying, Surely our foes are destroyed and fire devours their wealth. Eliphaz turns from accusing to Job to now talking about and seeking to instruct him on God's dealing with human beings. He begins by speaking of God's high and exalted position. And then he he speaks of what he imagines Job's position to be. And it is this, and the question, does God have a clue what's going on on this planet? Does God know what is happening in this world? And by extension, we could ask, does he even care? Because as Eliphaz understands it, Job is saying God is so wonderful and so transcendent as to be distant and therefore not concerned with what is going on on this planet, and certainly not to be concerned with the problems of one person. Eliphaz fears that Job's view of God's transcendence has confused him on the matter of God's eminence. That is, God is not only outside creation, but inside it as well. But I think he's really misread Job. Job is not concerned that God somehow made the world and has left it to its own devices. Rather, Job's concern is that God seems rather inconsistent and erratic in how he deals with humanity. Job imagines, for him, everything that has happened to him, this is what God has done. So it is not as though God doesn't know 
This is what God has done to Job. Job wants to know why God has done this to him. Eliphaz points out that in the past, and there may be a reference here to the great flood, that wicked men thought God didn't know what they were doing. And if he did, what can the Almighty do? There's a certain irony there. What can the Almighty do? Well, he can do whatever he wants. Verse 18 really threw me as I was studying because I'm like, wait a minute, I've, I've read this verse before. It matches what Job said last week in chapter 21, verse 16. That is, that while they understand that the wicked prosper because of God, they reject the position of the wicked. They're not saying we want to be wicked. And then in verses 19 and 20, Eliphaz says, when the wicked are punished, the righteous will rejoice. This, I think, is sort of the introduction to the third and final section of the speech. We haven't heard this for two speeches from Zophar Bildad, but one more time, Eliphaz calls on Job to repent, to turn from his sins. Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 21 through 30. Submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you, accept instruction from his mouth, and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove wickedness far from your tent and assign your nuggets to the dust, your gold of Ophir to the rocks of the ravines, then the Almighty will be your gold, the choicest silver for you. Surely then you will find delight in the Almighty and will lift up your face to God. You will pray to him and he will hear you and you will fulfill your vows. What you decide on will be done and light will shine on your ways. When men are brought low and you say, lift them up, then he will save the downcast. He will deliver even one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. It seems fairly straightforward. Eliphaz is saying, you need to get right with God. You need to repent. You need to return to God. But that's not all. He seeks to tempt him, if you wish, or entice him to repent. And he does so by making a list of the benefits he will receive if, in fact, he repents. He'll be reconciled to God. He will have material prosperity. He will be wise. He will have a joyful life. He will have security. Verse 28, he will have power in prayer. Whatever he prays for, that will happen. And he will have authority in intercession. He will be able to go to God on the behalf of someone who may not be innocent and say, God, take care of him. And God will. God will lift him. You may remember that Eliphaz and Bildad had done this earlier in the book of Job. And we took note of it, that in doing so, they are on Satan's side of the equation and not God's. You might say, how is that? Do you remember what Satan said about Job's faithfulness? Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him in his household and everything he has? In other words, to Satan, Job worships God and fears God because he has a good life. Take away the good life and he will curse God. Eliphaz is sort of coming in at it from a different direction, but saying basically the same thing. Return to God and you will have the good life. That is, repent and serve God for the benefits of that you will be able to receive. This is not a biblical position. This is a satanic position. This is what we hear Satan saying. 
We are called to worship the true God because he is the true God. He is the creator. We are to repent because we are in need of reconciliation, not for some benefits we might get out of it. There are tremendous benefits to repenting. There are tremendous benefits to being reconciled to God. I mean, the psalmist says, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. It's better to be reconciled to God than to be God's enemy. But unfortunately, oftentimes the Christian faith is presented as Eliphaz does. Come and you will get all these wonderful gifts. Almost on TV, Jack Pardo tell us what our repenting sinner is going to get for his repentance. You might be wondering, how does this third area deal with the question, is God interested in humanity at all? So far, we've asked the question, is God interested in the righteousness of any individual? Does God know what's happening on this planet? What connection does that have to do? How do we fit this in, in this, this particular section? I think it is this. Does God have anything to do with the restoration of a relationship with him? If you read Eliphaz carefully, he puts the whole burden of restoration on Job's shoulders. There is a place for repentance, turning from sin, turning to God. But we must be clear, and Eliphaz is not, and in this he is like his friends, he is without grace, he has no sense of grace. If we ever turn back to God in repentance and we are restored, God's grace is a part of the equation. It isn't simply that God is some great divine vending machine and we, we put in our repentance and, and pull the knob and we get out the things that God wants us to have. I think this is how Eliphaz presents God as some impersonal giant vending machine that if Job will just repent, look at the list of things that God will give him. Now, I want to be careful. Repentance is a vital part of being restored to God. And the benefits are out of this world, if you will pardon the expression. But let us be clear. Any reconciliation, any restoration of a broken relationship requires both parties to act. And apart from God's grace, we cannot act. And so God must begin the process. It is God who must come to us, and he has. And then we respond to his grace and repentance. But for Eliphaz, there is no place for grace. Everything is black and white. Bad things happen to bad people, and so repent, make your peace with God, and all will be well. I think Eliphaz, like his friends, does not dare to tackle the really big problem. What if Job hasn't done anything wrong? What if Job is telling the truth? Eliphaz, like his friends and like so many people today, and I think even many in the church, are afraid to say, I don't know why all these horrible things have happened to you. I mentioned at the beginning of our study in the book of Job, and we've seen it as we've gone through, that Job's friends get some things right and some things wrong. It'd be a lot easier if they were just completely wrong and we could sort of, say, ignore them. But no, they do get some things right. Eliphaz is right 
in seeing sin against one fellow's man as wickedness. To say, Job, God is punishing you for the things you have done against your fellow human beings. And Eliphaz is wrong. He's wrong that Job has done these things. He hasn't. But he is right in saying that when you sin against your fellow human being, in something as simple as refusing to give a cup of water to someone who is thirsty, you are wicked and you are sinning against God. Sin is not merely against God, it is against our fellow man. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four deal with our relationship to God, and the last six, our relationship to our fellow human beings. Eliphaz is right when he calls Job to repentance. If Job has done the things listed here, then absolutely Job needs to say, I am sorry for what I have done, and I will not do that anymore, and ask for God's forgiveness. But Eliphaz is wrong to sort of hold out the benefits to say, come on now, come on, Job. Just repent and look at all these gifts that God will give you. Eliphaz is also wrong to think that God does not delight in the obedience of his people. That the obedience of God's people, it does in fact bring him pleasure. Have you thought about this? Uh, so I was going through this. I think uh, the, the picture that comes to mind for me is the Monty Python movie, Holy Grail, where God is saying, you know, it's always forgive me for this and forgive me for that. That, that we tend to think of God only as keeping track of our bad things, our sins. And that this grieves him and it brings him sorrow and it makes him mad. But do we ever think that when we obey him, it brings him pleasure. He delights in it. I mean, one could almost say that God is beaming as he speaks to Satan about my servant Job. Or do we think of him only as someone who's ready with a stick to crack us over the head every time we make a mistake? Uh, Eliphaz is so wrong. God delights in the righteousness and the obedience of his people. And Eliphaz is right to acknowledge God's transcendence. But transcendence is a tricky issue. Because when we begin to exalt God, if we're not careful, it's like a hot air balloon. It gets away from us and then he's so far away from us that we no longer see him as connected to our lives. Let me read to you what one author has written in this matter. Tell me how lofty God is for you, and I'll tell you how little he means to you. That could be a theological axiom. The lofty God has been lofted right out of my private life. It is certainly remarkable, but it is true. God has become of concern to me only because he has made himself smaller than the Milky Way. Only because he is present in my little sick room when I gasp for breath or understands the little care I cast on him. He concerns me because Jesus Christ takes the speck of my anxiety and my personal guilt upon himself. We have gathered here to worship God and God is the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He is transcendent. But let's not put him up so high 
that we lose the connection to know that he is concerned with the smallest detail of our lives. It is Jesus who tells us that the very hairs of our heads are numbered. So Eliphaz gets some things right, he gets some things wrong. The things that are wrong we should correct, the things that are right I think we should embrace. And understand that yes, we are not to sin against our fellow man. That repentance is in fact important. God is transcendent. But no, we don't invite people to repent for the benefits. We tell them to repent because it is the right thing to do. And we should, I think, rejoice in the fact that God rejoices in our obedience. He takes delight in the good things we do. He doesn't simply grieve over the sins that we commit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this chapter and ask that your spirit would take it home to our hearts, that in the days to come we would think through these matters and meditate on them. Ask now that as we leave this place, your grace and spirit would go with us. May we be lights in a world of darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together? bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.